Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 as we continue our march through the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and our text for this morning will be verses 6 to 10. 1 Thessalonians 3 beginning at verse 6. Paul writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we walk our way through this text this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us so that we might know, we might know you, we might know what you expect from us. And we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit that enables us to understand it and and interpret it correctly because he illuminates the truth for us. And so this morning, again, as we look at your word, may your Holy Spirit teach us. May we again see the truths that are here, and I pray that you would grant us the willingness to be obedient and the power to be obedient to the things that we hear and see this morning, I pray. pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. We, we've mentioned this before, but oftentimes... What has happened in North America specifically is that we have come, become what we call solo Christians. We've become lone rangers. And we think that our faith is completely about us. It's my personal faith, my personal trust in God. It's my growth. It's my convictions. It's the way that I think I should live. And in fact, oftentimes we find that other Christians and other points of views and even our church actually hampers our spiritual walk because they keep on telling us things that we disagree with and we don't like. And so we almost, we almost can see other believers as those who are holding us back. Yet in the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about God calling in in his sovereignty those to salvation. And he says, actually, salvation is a work of God, and he's the one who in eternity past by his power has chosen you for salvation. And in that salvation, he says, that salvation is individual. In fact, he says in 2, 8, 9, it's those who believe. Those who come by grace, by faith, that he has given to them, those individuals are saved. 
But Paul does not leave you there. Paul doesn't just say you're saved individually and that's the way things go. He actually goes on to say that you've been placed into the body of Christ. You are now a member. You are now a stone in the temple. You are now, a, a, we would call you a body part in the body of Christ that is, ne- that is necessary for the functioning of the body. And in fact, if you take a body part off, you suffer. If you lose even a finger, it ultimately causes you pain and it causes you difficulty. And so we must recognize that we were never saved to be alone. We were never saved to be solo Christians. We were actually saved to walk out our faith in community. We were saved to walk out our faith in community. In other words, we were never meant to be alone. And so Paul has really been stressing that as he starts in, in chapter 2, verse 17, as he start, and he started to stress this idea that we need to be together face to face. He started with, the, with, with really the idea, I've been ripped from you. I've been orphaned from you. I no longer see you face to face. Yes, you're in my heart, but that's not enough for me. I, I wanted to come to see you. I tried. In fact, I packed my suitcases. I got things ready to go is the idea. And I did this more than once. But every time I got out there, what? The bus wasn't running. And he says, actually, Satan hindered me from coming. And he says, I wanted to see you because you're my crown. You're, you're my joy. You're our glory and joy. This is what I think about you because, and I want to be with you. In other words, it's not enough to think about you, but I want to see you face to face. And then beginning in chapter 3, 1 to 5, Paul continued and he said, you know what, I couldn't, I couldn't stand not being away from you. We said the idea was here, I was leaking my feelings. I just couldn't contain them to the point where I had to take actions. And so I sent Timothy to you. Timothy, our brother, our fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. And he says, I'm concerned about you and I'm concerned about your faith. Paul is concerned not just about his own faith, but now he's concerned about the faith of his converts. The, I'm worried about your faith. I'm afraid that you've been disturbed by your afflictions. And so I said, I'm sending Timothy to encourage you and strengthen you in your faith. I don't want to see you fall away. I want you to continue to grow. He says, I warned you about those afflictions. As a, good, as a good pastor and a teacher, I warned you that this would happen. And I was afraid that Satan would take this away from you. So Paul says, I, I, I needed to know about your faith. I needed to, because I can't come personally, at least I, I sent our brother. And now Paul, as he comes into verse 6 to 10 here, continues on, and now we see really Paul's response to Timothy's trip to Thessalonica. This is what happened to Paul when he, when he heard of Timothy's report, and it was a good report. Paul now is, is emotional. 
We would say that in his language here, it is, it is some of the most emotional language in Scripture. He's excited. When he's writing this point, this part of the message, he is fresh from receiving the letter from Timothy. And so he, he is, he is in, we would say, in an overflow and, uh, and an afterglow of that letter and that good report, writing this to the Thessalonians. And so as he again expresses his joy in them, and he ex- again expresses his feelings about them, Paul gives us really as, and, and really a continued defense of his love for them and that he has neglected them. He also gives us three activities that we should be involved in, in ministry and in our Christian walk, as we think of the faith of others. In other words, we are in community and there's a shouldn't be just a focus on my faith. It should be a focus on other people's faces, faiths. And so today we will see three activities that we should be involved in in ministry. First of all, we should have a passionate delight for people's faith, for other people's faith. Secondly, we should have a passionate thanksgiving for our people's faith. And third, we should have a passionate prayer for other people's faith. Now, I put passionate in front of there because, well, it, it, well it, makes, it makes it more superlative. But I want us to get the idea that Paul is excited here. As he, as he writes, he's excited. This is an emotional response after fearing for his converts. So first of all, we see this morning a passionate delight in his people's faith. Paul says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you. And, and he says, in contrast to what has gone before. In other words, I had anxiety for you. I was, I was worried for the Thessalonians' faith. I was afraid that Satan might have tempted you. I thought you might leave the faith or be weak in the faith. But he says, but now, or, or more, maybe we could translate that, but just now, just now Timothy has come from you. There's a, there's a certain vividness. Now, there's, Timothy's been there long enough to give his report, but the idea is Timothy's just arrived, and now I'm penning this to you. Timothy has come back from Thessalonica where he was sent. And so Paul's heart is overflowing with joy and excitement. And so there's kind of a spontaneous glow of affection as he writes. And he says, it's, it's, he's come from what? Come to us from you. In other words, Paul, is, Paul isn't interested in just Thessalonica or what's happening in Thessalonica. He's interested in the personal lives of the individuals in the church in Thessalonica. It's from you. I'm interested in you, and it's to us. Now, this may imply that Silas has returned with him, but Paul certainly is there. And he says, Timothy has come back, and he has brought us good news. He has brought us good news. Now, it's interesting that of the word that he uses here. Because everywhere else that Paul uses this word, he uses it for the preaching of the gospel. He uses it for the preaching of the gospel. You angelizo. 
it means preaching. It's a verb. Sometimes we use the word for preach or, or the gospel as a noun, but here it is a verb, the preaching. And he says, and he brought good news. In other words, the idea is he brought to me something that was uh, almost like the gospel to Paul's heart. Now, it wasn't the gospel. His report wasn't the gospel. But he is actually, as Timothy come, is announcing the work of the gospel in the lives of of the converts in Thessalonica. It's good news concerning the good news that they had preached at Thessalonica. And so Paul uses this word, and and Paul says, when I heard it, it was a relief to my heart. It was a relief to my soul. It, It was what I needed to hear. And so he uses this unique word, this strong word, to indicate how good news it was for him. And so he says, this, this news was brought to me, and it was good news. It was, it was news that I, 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 what, what soothed my soul. And he says, they brought good news of your faith and love. Now, he really, there's really four points to this, to this report. He says, good news of your faith, of your love, that you think kindly of us and longing to see us. And he says, the first thing is he reported of your faith. In other words, he came and reported to me that you continue to be in the faith. In other words, your faith and trust in God was not lost. You didn't, you didn't apostatize, you didn't leave the faith, but rather your, your trust in God continues. And he says, you, you, didn't, you didn't leave it. You continue to carry on. And this is important to Paul because Paul wants to hear about their faith. This is the most important thing. Have they continued on? I gave you the gospel. You, you responded. I was thrust away from you. I was taken away from you. Are you still in the faith? And he says, Timothy comes back and he says, good news. Good news. They are carrying on in the faith. And Paul says, that, that's a salve to my soul. And he says, and your love. Now, there's some debate what what love means here. Some people say it means their love for God. In other words, their faith and they continue to their love for God. Others say it speaks of their love for each other. But in context, I can't help but think that he is speaking of their love for the missionaries. In other words, he, he is... Timothy is gone and he's gone to the Thessalonians and he has said... And he's checked up on their faith. And remember, Paul is under attack. The leaders are under attack. And they want to undermine Paul. And one of the charges was that actually Paul had left them, just abandoned them, that he didn't care for them. And so Paul was afraid that maybe they had believed part of that and that maybe they had now started to resent Paul because he had left them and orphaned them. And yet... The report is actually, they still love the missionaries. And again, a picture of Christian character recognizing the circumstances and still love the missionaries. And then he says, and that you always think kindly of us. And the idea here is without exception, they think 
kindly of them. They think good of them. They think that what that there is nothing that they have in their mind is the idea that would cause them to think badly of them. And the idea here to think has not so much the idea of recalling, but rather continually remembering in their mind. It's not like they forgot and bring it to, to their mind, but it is something that they continue. They have a memory and maintain a, recole- a recollection. In other words, they don't, they don't oh, as if they've been reminded, the idea is this continually is in their mind. They continually think, they continually think kindly of us. And so Paul is grateful that the slander of the propagandists and the propaganda of his enemies had not alienated his converts. And he's deeply grateful that they are always thinking kindly of them. Sweet says, loving remembrance of former teachers is a Christian duty. And so we must think kindly of them. And then he says, longing to see us as we long to see you. And so if Paul had earlier said, we, we want to see you. We have great desire to see you. In 2.17, we want to see your faces. We, want to come. we tried to come to you. And here, the, the feeling is reciprocated. In other words, these leaders longed. They had a tender yearning towards a, an absent beloved one. And they wanted to continue. And this was the idea of continually feeling this way. We long and continue to long to see, to see you. In other words, the Thessalonians wanted to see Paul as much as Paul had wanted to see them. A remarkable reciprocal love. And Paul says, this is the news that was given to me. Your faith is strong. Your love for us has not undwindled. You think kindly of us and you long to see us as we long to see you. It's funny because we we often think of Paul as this Lone Ranger. We kind of we tend to think that he's impervious to feelings. We we think that somehow he could he would just you know he would just he's like Superman. He would just charge anything all alone. And yet it's very very clear that as Paul continued in his ministry, he wanted to be with he wanted to be with others. He wanted to he want he had affection for others and a desire for them. And then he says in verse 7, for this reason, for this reason. In in other words, he points back to verse 6. He says, because you brought us good news of of your faith, because of your faith, because of your love, because you were always thinking kindly, because you were longing to see us, brethren. And again, he gives that, that fraternal feeling, that love that for family. He says, because of that, for this reason, because of the report that we received, he says, we were comforted. We were comforted through your faith. They were relieved. They were relieved about what was taking place. This word paracolite here has the idea, it can have two ideas. It can have the idea of instruction. And we saw that back in where Timothy said, in, in verse 3, verse 2, 
where, where as a father, he strengthened and encouraged you through the faith, uh, as to your faith. But the idea here is, is comfort or to encourage, to strengthen. And Paul says, we were strengthened through your faith. In other words, God used your faith. It was by that means that we der- derived personal encouragement from hearing about your authentic faith and walk of, of believers. And so here is Paul drawing comfort, as it were, from the faith of those who he ministered to. He said in Romans, he, he gives the same idea in Romans 1, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And so Paul is encouraged by their faith, and he wants them to be encouraged by, by his faith. And so there's this mutual dependence that comes. And again, this is the fourth time that Paul has mentioned faith in this passage. This is a central concern about them. He wants them to grow in faith. He's concerned about their faith. And in fact, we would say the other parts of the report would be impossible if their faith, faith had not proved steadfast, right? Their love wouldn't be there, their longing to see them. All of those things would be absent if they had not maintained in the faith. Well, we see the context of receiving this comfort. It says, in all distress and affliction, in all distress and and affliction and again these two words here are are really synonyms uh, speaking of of outward forces that come upon them we saw affliction had the idea of pressure a pressure that comes upon in fact it was used we said last time of of a of force upon a grape that causes it to burst and so timothy the, the question here then becomes what what affliction, what distress was he under? What was going on here? Is this just psychological? Is this just Paul's stress about the Thessalonians? Was, he, was this just about him being concerned in, in his burden? Well, the language here has the idea of being in. In, in other words, they're, they're not, it's not past, but they, they are in affliction. And the idea is they are presently in, still in affliction. They are in, still in distress. They're still in persecution. And so it seems that Paul is actually referring to his circumstances while he was in Corinth alone. In other words, he had gone on ahead from Athens. He had gone to Corinth and he had ministered to, uh, by himself in Corinth. And so we don't really have a lot of information about it. It's not recorded very much information about Paul while he was in Corinth alone. But we might have a little hint as to what was going on with Paul in Acts chapter 18, verse 9. Paul has a, has a vision, and the Lord appears to Paul at that time. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. 
Now listen to the language. He says this, do not be afraid any longer. Implication is what? He was afraid. Paul was already afraid. And he was afraid here, and and he says, um, if, if we go on in the verse, he talks about no one will harm you. No one will harm you. In other words, Paul was in real danger in Corinth. And it appears that as Paul was there by himself, he was afraid. There was danger, there was hardship, and he was in real danger for his life. And so Paul says, actually, we, I received your report, but guess what, Thessalonians? I was in distress too. I was under real threat of my life. And so Paul says, this, this report gave us comfort. And we were so concerned about you that even in our own troubles, it was an encouragement. In fact, it was such an encouragement, he said. He says in verse 8, For now we really live. For now we really live. And so he says, This is the result of the report from you. This is, this is, this is the absolute uh, uh, confirmation of the steadfastness of your faith. Paul says, but before there had been a dead weight of apprehension, they felt lifeless, had no enthusiasm. But now, in a consequence of the news Timothy brought, he says, we feel what? Truly alive. We, we don't just exist. We now feel like life is being lived to its fullest. And he says, this, this, is, this is how we feel. This continues to be our feeling. We, we, we are alive and life is full. He says, this is, this, we were once in apprehension. We were much, much at one time completely upset. We didn't know what was happening to you. We didn't know if you had left the faith. And now our mind has been eased. We've been given a new lease on life, as it were. In fact, had the the Thessalonians apostatized, it would have been a virtual death blow to Paul. The success of the cause of Christ, the winning of souls to him and continuance of such souls to him was Paul's very life. That's what he lived for. Of course, he lived for Christ first, but he, he wanted to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to others. should be noted that in other places where, where the churches were disobedient, it had an effect on the Apostle Paul. Now, we often think that in some sense that, that once you get spiritual enough that nothing ever bothers you. As if, as if somehow we, we get to that point where we just get above everything. And in fact, if you feel any kind of godly concern, you have a lack of faith. Well, that's simply not true. And this should be an encouragement to us because there is a time for godly concern. Now, we don't want to be worried. We don't want to, to be uh, in our flesh. 
but there is a godly concern. Listen to Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is dealing with a church that has been uh, difficult. In 1 Corinthians, he's correcting all of their theology. He's correcting all of their behavior. In chapter, in 2 Corinthians, now he's having to defend his apostleship. This church has gone from bad behavior to now even questioning Paul's authority as an apostle. And so Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 7, 6, But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. In other words, Paul sent Titus to them to see how they were doing. And Paul says, God comforts the depressed. In other words, I was depressed because you guys weren't behaving correctly. You guys weren't growing correctly. And Paul says there was a a sense of spiritual depression here because I desired that you would follow after Christ. And yet... You didn't. And so Paul says, it was when I heard the report of Titus that that depression left. God comforted me because I got a good report. Now you'll notice, he says, that we live. Now he puts a conditional clause on it. He puts a a condition, if, if. In other words, we, we live and we go as long as you continue. He says, if. You stand firm in the Lord. In other words, this is what enables me to act, to have a life that is well lived and to feel, feel like life is full if, if you are standing firm. Now, Paul is not doubting the fact that they are standing firm at this point. In fact, the suggestion is, is that they actually are standing Now, a lot of commentators want to say, since you are standing firm, but when putting the since in there, takes out the condition. In other words, he wants to provoke them to think about if they're standing firm. He wants that condition there, and he wants to provoke thought about it. And so the, the if here in English is not meant to put doubt on it, but rather to question and to challenge them to keep on standing firm. And so he says, are you standing firm? Do you have your feet planted firm in the faith? Are you doing what you are supposed to be? Are you persevering? Are you remaining steadfast, constant? Are Are you not moving away from what you have been taught? And of course, their faith is in the Lord. In other words, it's grounded in in faith and vital union with what the Lord Jesus Christ. Their faith was in Him. And are are they standing firm in Him? in union with him are they getting we would say are they are they a branch in the vine that is being fed by the Lord? And so he says, as long, if you stand firm, we truly live. Paul really demonstrates here a, a true pastor's heart and really a heart that we should all have in ministry. He desired, he delighted in his people. He delighted in, in their faith. He was concerned for them. He was devoted to them. 
Spurgeon writes, Never is a servant of God so full of delight as when he sees that the Holy Spirit is visiting his hearers, making them to know the Lord and confirming them in the heavenly knowledge. On the other hand, if God does not bless the word of his servants, it is like death to them. To be preaching and to have no blessing makes them heavy of heart. The chariot wheels are taken off and they drag heavily along. They seem to have no power nor liberty. And so the question for us is when we see others in the faith, do we delight in their spiritual growth? Do we actually delight in seeing God's work being done in them? Or do we resent it? Is it possible that we see others grow and then we start to become jaded? And we start to say, wow, they're really putting on airs, aren't they? They really, really think there's something, don't they? And there's a tendency for us to, to worry about ourselves and about our own personal faith and never to delight in those around us who are growing in the Lord. And Paul did. Paul delighted in their growth. He was fanatical about their faith. And he didn't resent it. He rejoiced in it. He delighted in it. Is that who we are? Are we actually concerned enough to look up from ourselves and enjoy the faith of others? Or are we only concerned about our personal walk and what, what's for us? Paul here has that true pastor's heart. He delights in his people. Well, Paul not only delights in the, in the faith of his people, but he also gives thanks to God for his people's faith. Verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy which we rejoice before our God on your account? So Fora here again looks back to the, to the life of new vigor of life that came from the report this is what the missionaries are, are experience. This new life shows itself in abundance of their thanksgiving for their converts. And so here is Paul now starting to give thanks. What thanks we render to God. He says, what, what thanks can we render to God in return for all the joy which you rejoice before our God on our account? Now this is a rhetorical question. And he's expecting you to answer none. There's nothing. There's nothing that be, can be given. Now notice this. He gives thanks to who? To God. Paul recognizes that he, whatever he does here is a work of God. He says, what can we render to God? The idea here is, is what, how can we repay? What recompense can we give in? What, what act can we do? How can we, there's the idea of giving exchange. God has given us joy. How can, we, how can we give thanks? How can we give enough thanks for it? There's nothing that we can do that could ever repay the joy that God has given to us as we see the Thessalonians grow. 
And again, Paul says that thanksgiving is to God. It's not. It's not. Now look, he doesn't say that the Thessalonians stood steadfast because the missionaries were awesome. He didn't say, you know what, I'm so grateful for your faith and I'm so glad that we could be part of that. In fact, you know what, it was because of the cleverness of our speech. It's because we grounded you in the word. We actually had the proper syllabus to give. We, we gave you the right information and you're good to go. He didn't say that. He didn't say, actually, wow, we're just thankful to God that we did it, right? We were awesome. We gave you all the right doctrine in the right order. That was awesome. Nor does he say, I am thankful to God for you Thessalonians because there is something about you. You guys are an exceptional group. You're smarter than most. You're, you, you, you get it, right? You are, you are an awesome, like you have such character and integrity. And it's because of your integrity and because of your character that you're able to grasp this and to stay in the faith. He doesn't say that. He actually says, we, we, we thank God. And Paul's gratitude is not to the Thessalonians for their faithfulness, nor is he, is he patting himself on the back, but his gratitude and his thanksgiving goes to God because he realizes that all spiritual blessings ultimately come from God. And there's a bit of a warning here. Let Christian workers be aware of taking credit for the results which only God can produce. And we go there very, very fast. We go there very, very fast as, as believers. Because we, we like to think that our gifting and even the results of our ministry are a result of how we apply those gifts. Now, we're, we're, we're going to put it in that language, but what we're actually saying is, I am essential to God's program and it is because of my wise decision making and my wise speak and my preparation that's, that this was happening. And it's very subtle and it's very easy for us to do that. And yet we must recognize that anything that happens in other people's lives as their faith grows is ultimately a work from God. Now, you may have been a means in which God uses you, but ultimately God produces the fruit. And so this encouragement here for them, but no occasion for personal pride. So he says, as he goes through here in verse 9, he says, for we really live, I mean, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy which we rejoice before God on your account? Again, we rejoice because of the joy that has been brought to us. What, what is joy? What is joy? We can define joy as as true Christian joy, 
is the supreme satisfaction in God in our circumstances. I'm going to say that again. I think it's a good definition. Supreme satisfaction in God in our circumstances. Right? It's not the circumstances. It's, it's, it's satisfaction in God in our circumstances. And Paul says, I have received supreme satisfaction in God in our circumstances. And in, in essence, we could say, Paul is probably here having experienced joy in a greater way because he has been concerned for them. He, he is going from what we would call godly concern to godly joy and rejoicing. And we understand that we understand how that works in our own lives, how when there's the, the thought of loss and then we get gain, how much happier we are. I was just thinking as it snowed, when I send my kids and they take the car and they, let's say they go to the mall on a sunny day and they drive home and they come through the door, you're kind of like, you don't really look up. You just say, make sure whatever you bought, you put away, right? And you carry on. But if they go to the mall and it starts to snow and blow and you turn on, I was going to say the radio, does anybody do that anymore? (laughs) And you look at the weather report and you realize there's been car accidents and people have been taken to the hospital and maybe someone has been killed on the road and you start to fear your kids are past due, they're supposed to be home at 3, now it's 3.30, it's quarter to 4, right? Now when they drive in the driveway and they walk through the door, right? You're just like, oh, I'm so glad you're home, right? Boom. And there's that joy that comes because you thought of loss and now of gain. And Paul says, this is where I'm at. This is the joy that I have at your return. This is what God has granted me because I thought you were lost. I was afraid for you. I thought Satan might have tempted you. But now I have all joy and I rejoice, he says. I, I have, I rejoice. I don't just have joy, but I rejoice before God. This is the one for whom the joy comes. This is the one in whose presence Paul is lifting up. And notice this, again, it's another instance of Paul lifting everything in his life, everything that came into his life, into the presence of God. That's where he went. That's where he lived. Thus he had lived in the sense of God's presence with him. This idea of rejoice with joy is a Hebrewism. It's a noun and a verb together. And it puts a spotlight on joy. The, mo- the wise man rejoiced with when Christ came. The wise man rejoiced with what? Great joy. And so he says there is just a multitude of joy. And so Paul here again gives for us a thanksgiving for God's work in people's lives. And the question for us then becomes, do we give thanksgiving for God's work in other people's lives? Do we give praise to God? Is that where we go? Are we so busy are we so busy going about our lives and about our faith and a concern for our growth that we never look around and say, 
Lord, thank you for the joy that has been brought into my life, and I want to give you, I want to give thanksgiving to you for your work. Do we actually take our eyes and lift them up? Do we go to the presence of God and with great joy give thanksgiving for those people's faith around us who continue to grow and continue to go forward? Paul's, that's what Paul does. Then the last thing I want us to see this morning is Paul's passionate prayer for his people. He says in verse 10, as we, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now again, Paul is concerned about their faith. And he says, night and day we keep praying earnestly for you. Now he defines his prayer in two ways. He says, night and day and earnestly. Now night and day does not mean that Paul prayed 24-7. Okay. He, wasn't, he wasn't someone who was, uh, never slept, but just simply prayed all the time. The idea here is that he prayed at periods during the night and at periods during the day. So there was, there was a constant on his mind. In other words, he, they were constantly on his mind, and when he thought of them, he prayed. And so when he woke up at night, he prayed. When he was through the day and he was ministering and he thought of them, he prayed for them. We would say he prayed without long seasons in between. He didn't neglect, there was, there was no neglect or forgetfulness. And he continued to lift them up. And then he says, most earnestly we prayed for you. Uh, abundantly, beyond measure, exceeding, overflowing all bounds, super abundantly. The idea is, is like really excessively, beyond the scope we would say exuberant with intense earnestness, the spontaneous overflow of the heart. You can't fake this kind of prayer. This was a heartfelt prayer that just flowed out of Paul and it was earnest and it was heartfelt. The idea here of earnestly is the word has the idea of to beg. It implies uh, asking and motivated by personal need. In other words, it's like Paul is pleading. He's beseeching is, a, is one way that this is translated. The normal word for prayer means to, is, it has, there's other words that he could have used to, to, to translate this. There's other words that speak of, of giving um, setting forth information, but here he says no up for prayer. I mean, he says, here he says, I, I was begging God on your behalf. And this is now the content of what he, what he prayed. He says that we may see your face. This, this again is Paul's desire that we might see you, that we might see your face. We saw that back in verse 217 where he wanted to see their face. And again, Paul is now making a request in, all of his, in spite of his, his thankfulness, in spite of all of the things that have taken place, he now has a request for himself. He wants to know the joy of fellowship again of his f and be face to face with his beloved converts. Now he's not just coming to, 
uh, to visit the church, the idea is that we might see what? Your face. In other words, faces are individual. You don't have the face of the congregation. The idea is your face. I want to see each one of you individually. And we would say this. Paul is not concerned about the church completely as a whole, but he wants to know the individuals. And a shepherd knows each of his sheep, sensitive to where they are hurting and where they need help. And so Paul has been defending himself about coming to see them. He's, he's been wanting to, he's been defending why he's away from them, why he hasn't returned. And now he assures them that those longings and the efforts that he talked about in sending Timothy now indicates that it's important enough for him to pray for them. In other words, this is, this is what's important to him. And we know what's important to us because we pray for it. And you know every time that you get into trouble and every time that I get into trouble, what do we do? Right? How about when you're sliding off the road? Right? Lord, help me. Right? You go straight there. And Paul says, it's important enough. This, I am, it's important enough to me that I pray earnestly, most earnestly, and night and day. It's important to me because it's on my heart. And so he says to the Thessalonians, how can you not think How can you think that I've deserted you? This is important to me. You notice this. Paul was not satisfied with a good report. Paul was not satisfied with a good report. He didn't just say, Oh, good news from Thessalonica. Done with that. Off we go, right? Put that on the back burner. No. Paul says, the good report actually stirred up more feelings and now I want to see you face to face more. Paul doesn't just leave them. He now desires to see them more. And he wants to see them face to face, not just for a social visit, not just to to see them, though I'm certainly, there was probably some in the congregation that he wanted to see more than others. But the idea here is it wasn't just a personal visit. It wasn't just to see them, to see who them, to, you know, say hello to them as a person. But he had a specific design in mind, and that's what we see in his second request. And may complete what is lacking in your faith. And he says, I want to come to see you. And and this request was not actually granted to see them for several years later. But he says, I wanted to see you to complete what is lacking in your faith. In other words, I want to come and, and fix what is not finished. I want to arrange it properly. To make complete, to make good. Now Paul is not saying here that their faith was defective. Paul is not saying your faith is defective. What he's saying is that your faith is still not mature yet. It's not completed. And you would understand that as Paul has come here, he spent probably less than three months with the Thessalonians before he was torn away from them. Timothy may have spent some time longer than that. But we're about six months in. This church is about six months old. 
And so there's the idea here that this church still needs some more instruction and some more ideas, some more teaching. That's easy to brush over, but I want you to think. I want you to put yourself in, in their shoes. Some guy comes to your city, Bowmanville, and you hear him preach and you get saved. And for the next three months, you sit under his teaching and then he's gone. How much information about the faith do you think that you could absorb in three months? Now, surprisingly, quite a bit. Actually, surprisingly, quite a bit. But do you think that you would be fully orbed in your understanding of all the theological issues? I see a couple of people shaking their head, yes. No, that's not true. Right? We're all still learning. We're all still learning. And so Paul says, actually, I, I, I want to what? I want to... I want to come there because your faith is not complete. In other words, there are things in your faith that need still to be taught, things that still need to be filled out. There were still deficiencies in them. Sure, they were, we would say this, as to enthusiasm, they were, they were doing well, right? They had, they had grasped it, they had taken with it, they had taken it under persecution and they were holding but they certainly didn't have all their faith together. Everything that was, there was things that were lacking. We could say this, there were things that, there were principles that were lacking concerning their conduct, their hope, and their mutual relationships. There was things, and Paul will now address these in the rest of the book in chapters four and five. In chapters, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 12, he deals with their conduct. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 5, 11, he deals with their hope. In, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 22, he deals with mutual relationships. So he says, there's still more to, taught, to teach you. We still have to teach you about your hope and things to come. We have to teach you about how to get along with each other. We got it. We're going to teach you how to live a godly life. And he says, there's still things lacking in your faith. And so Paul says, I, I, I want to come. I want to, fi- I, want to, I want to come to you to complete what is lacking in your faith. And so as we, as we finish up here, then we, we want to look and we say, here are three activities that Paul was involved in. As he came and as he looked at them, as he heard that report, he delighted in, in the faith of his people. He, was, he had, was thankful to God for their faith. And then ultimately, he prayed for his converts. He prayed for that their faith, desiring their faith to grow. And so as we, as we finish up this morning, we have to ask ourselves again, Is the conversion and spiritual growth of others, does it bring us joy? Are are we actually delighting in the conversion of others and the growth of others? Are they a a source of profound joy? Do Do you ever find that when someone is 
sharing their testimony or sharing their growth in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're kind of like bored? Or are you, you know, getting one in the chamber because you're going to tell your story next and so you're, you're planning your story? Or do you delight in them? Are you genuinely burdened for those God has placed in your life? Paul was. Are you burdened by their struggles? Are you burdened by, their, by the fact that they don't continue to grow? And here's the last question. Is your spiritual life dependent upon the health of your church? In other words, we often divorce our spiritual state from the church. We often divorce our spiritual life from the church because guess what? I can keep going to that bad church with its bad theology and its shallow teaching because guess, guess what? I'm a Lone Ranger Christian. I can, get it, I can study the Bible myself. In fact, sometimes, you know, the teaching from the pulpit just interferes with my blank slate that allows me to find truth on my own. And actually, we're called to what? To learn in community. And so when we come together, we often find out that actually we allow people to suffer around us. We don't get involved with others because we're not interested in their lives. We're coming here for a top-off and then we leave. And God has intended that we have the heart of Paul, that we are recognizing that, it, that our faith and the faith of those within our local body is our concern. It's not just your life. It's the life of the individuals in the church that you attend. And again, we would say this is why we get together. This is why we meet regularly. This is why the church must gather. Because we need to be together in order to encourage one another in their faith. We must learn that we are created for community. We are, we are created as a family to care for one another's spiritual well-being. And if we don't, we short-circuit our own growth, we short-circuit the growth of others, and we ultimately short-circuit the growth of the church. I pray that we will be those who will not grow as independents but that we will be those who are concerned for the faith of those in our local body. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and we, we thank you for Paul's heart that we see on display here. And as he demonstrates his, his love and his care for the faith of the Thessalonians, 
we are reminded that we are created to be in community and that our concern goes beyond our own personal growth, but to the faith of those around us. And I pray that you would make us a church who is concerned for the faith of others, that we would delight in their faith and we would rejoice with them, that we would be grateful for you, for the work that you are producing in those around us. And I pray that we would be those who would intercede for those and for their faith around us as we look to be your instrument to aid in their spiritual growth, I pray. Pray that you would help us to take these and implement them in our lives for your glory, I pray. In your name, amen.